Hello, um, I'm Jeffrey Reist, and I'm a clinical assistant professor here at the College of Pharmacy at the University of Iowa. And today we're going to talk about uh, nursing home regulations um, as they relate to psychotropic medication use. I have nothing to disclose. I have no financial relationships with anyone, uh, manufacturers of products or services. The learning objectives are on your screen. Um, I'm going to just briefly talk about the nursing home regulations themselves. We're going to try to define some of the terms that are used in the nursing home regulations, such as unnecessary medications, listing some of the specific medications mentioned in the regulations. Hopefully, at the end of this presentation, you'll be able to evaluate a nursing home resident's medication regimen for some of these potentially unnecessary medications and make recommendations to maintain, adhere to maintain adherence with the regs. Um, and also to develop appropriate monitoring plans so that when these medications are necessary, we will be able to um, appropriately monitor our patients and residents. Uh, the nursing home industry, as, as we know, is, is very highly regulated. Uh, there are hundreds and hundreds of pages of regulations in Appendix PP of the State Operations Manual from which uh, the regulations that we're going to talk today um, are, are located. Um, there's several that deal directly with medications, and there's quite a few actually that deal kind of indirectly with medications. The ones we're gonna talk about today are the Pharmacy Services Reg, which is the FTAG 425 and um, F431, the Drug Regimen Review, which is F428, and Unnecessary Medications, where we're gonna spend most of our time today, which is the famous F329. Um, Appendix PP of the State Operations Manual is listed at the final slide as my main reference for this talk. Um, this is a, a lengthy document. It's about 665 pages. Um, and uh, the unnecessary med reg, the, the F329, takes up about 80 pages of that, of that document. So briefly to understand where we're, where we're coming through from with all of these the medication regs we're going to talk about is we have to understand the pharmacy services in the nursing facility. Um, pharmacy services have been a part of the regulations for decades. Um, my background um, as a nursing home consultant pharmacist started in the 1980s and at that time pharmacists were re required to do nursing home med reviews as they are today. Um, the Pharmacy services reg basically talks about the role of the pharmacist overseeing all aspects of medication use. We're not gonna talk about all aspects today. We're gonna to mainly talk about um, another regulation, which is the drug regimen review regulation. The drug regimen review regulation um, states that a pharmacist must conduct a monthly medication review on each resident in a nursing facility. However, I can tell you that these days, with the higher level of care that many nursing home residents require, um, I personally believe that a monthly med review is maybe not adequate. Uh, certainly, there are certain residents that could uh, require uh, much more frequent medication reviews, and that's going to be uh, pretty much up to the discretion of the, the team taking care of the resident. But regulation-wise, it is a requirement of monthly. Um, the, the results of the, the medication review really need to be reported to both the director of nursing and the attending physician. Um, and, and importantly, those findings uh, of that report must be acted upon. The goals for the drug regimen review are 
are pretty straightforward. We really want to make sure that our residents um, have attained the goals of their therapy, whatever that may be. Everything from appropriate uh, target levels of blood pressure, lipids, uh, behaviors. So any appropriate goal of therapy, we want to assure appropriate monitoring. Uh, many medications require periodic monitoring and we want to make sure those occur. Um, and then we also want to identify any potential medication related causes of symptoms or changes in conditions. And this is really where um, a lot of the, the background between behind the unnecessary drug regulation comes from, because we know that medications can be a significant cause of uh, morbidity in patients of all ages, and particularly um, our older adults. Uh, behavior changes, cognitive decline, falls, dizziness, constipation, sedation, all can be significant uh, side effects of medication that can be quite devastating um, in the older adult. And, and uh, that is one of the roles of the pharmacist and the other members of the healthcare team is to try to identify those when possible. The unnecessary medication reg, which is where we're gonna spend the, mess, the rest of our time, um, again, in the State Operations Manual Appendix, it is uh, listed under FTAG 329. Uh, again, it's about 80 pages. There's a tremendous amount of information there. And really, there is a lot of very good monitoring information for many, many drugs. The, um, there's a Table 1 uh, within the regulations, which I would recommend that um, anyone that, that is interested in reviewing medication regimens for appropriateness um, in nursing home residents take a look at that. Uh, that table one has, in addition to the, the classes of drugs that we're going to talk about today, the psychotropic medications, um, it lists medications all the way from cardiovascular agents, including blood pressure meds, warfarin, um, all the way to medications used for urinary incontinence. And it lists a lot of very good monitoring parameters. Um, and it can be a very good resource. So I would encourage you um, to take a look at that. And it's and again, it's table one. It is located in appendix PP of the state operations manual. So the unnecessary medication regulation in general um, is pretty clearly defined um, in the regulation. It basically defines um, a potentially unnecessary med is any drug when used in excessive dose, duration, with, without monitoring, or in the presence of some of those adverse consequences that we just talked about, the side effects, if you will. Um, I don't particularly like the term unnecessary med. It tends to put us all a little bit on edge. I, I really wish they would have called this regulation something else, maybe uh, medications to be vigilant about or something like that, but but it is what it is. Um, it is called the unnecessary med regulation. Um, but remember that based on the, the definition, any drug could be considered an unnecessary drug. The regulations tend to focus on the classes that have been known to cause most problems um, in older adults, but truly um, any medication, an antihistamine used for allergies, if it's not adequately monitored or if it has extreme side effects, could be an unnecessary drug. Um, a drug for urinary incontinence with um, anticholinergic side effects could certainly be considered an unnecessary drug. So the regulation does not or is not limited to the class of drugs that we're going to talk about today, which are primarily psychotropic drugs, but it certainly uh, can be applied to any drug in any, any category. 
Now, the unnecessary drug reg does list some very specific medications and classes of medications. Uh, the three uh, general classes that are represented include two fairly uh, narrow classes, the antipsychotics the, and also the sedative hypnotics or agents to induce sleep. Um, but then there's a very broad category, which um, is relatively new to this regulation, and it is called the psychopharmacological medication category. Um, and this broad category uh, is really defined by how a medication is used or what, it's, what that medication is being used to treat. So the diagnosis or indication, if you will. Um, I'm going to take these one group at a time. And within each group, we're going to talk about some examples. We're also going to talk about um, some uh, monitoring parameters that we would want to include um, in our care plans. And we're also going to talk about that um, issue that always comes up, which is the gradual dosing requirement or dosing reduction requirement. So we're going to start with antipsychotics. Um, antipsychotics have been mentioned in some form or another in regulations for many, many years. They were really one of the first classes of psychotropic drugs that were targeted uh, by regulations. This was probably um, due to back before regulations dealing with these agents, um, the use of antipsychotics was fairly widespread in nursing home residents. I can remember back in the, the mid-80s when I really started this, um, it was fairly common to have a, a large percentage of residents in nursing facilities on an antipsychotic of one form or another, um, some of which were even very, very inappropriately used um, and really considered more what we would call today chemical restraints. So the antipsychotics have been regulated for a long, long time. Um, um, and I think most of us are aware of most of the regs, but I will go through them today for, for completeness. So basically, if a person is coming into a nursing facility or if they um, uh, are in a nursing facility and we're going to consider using antipsychotic medications, we better have some pretty good reasons for that, is what this regulation says. And if we're using them for behaviors primarily, um, we're going to have to do some gradual dose reductions um, and have some very well-documented behavioral interventions, um, unless clinically contraindicated. Um, the goal for these agents when used for behaviors associated with primarily dementing type illnesses is really to discontinue these agents as quickly as possible. So there's basically two general categories of use for antipsychotics. Um, the true, and I hate to use the term, but the true psychiatric diagnoses such as schizophrenia, bipolar affective disorder, uh, depression with psychotic features, um, various what we would call psychiatric diagnoses is one category of use. Um, and then the other major category of use um, primarily in older adults is dementia type illnesses with associated behavioral symptoms. An example of this would be Alzheimer's disease. Um, the reason why it's important to consider these two basic categories of use is because their intended use will dictate some of the requirements um, of our monitoring um, and our, our gradual dosing reduction requirements. In addition to a diagnosis, um, we do need to have a clinical condition to include documenting why these agents are necessary. 
Um, and you might say, why are we so concerned about all of this with this class of drugs? Um, and I'll tell you that the main reason is because there are some potentially serious, um, very much sometimes life-threatening or permanent uh, side effects associated with these agents that mean that, that their, their inappropriate use uh, should really be discouraged. Um, antipsychotics have a what we call an FDA black box warning. Um, and a black box warning from the FDA is, although it is becoming more common now than it used to be, but it really requires the labeling of the drug from the manufacturer to include some specific warnings that the FDA approves. Um, and it usually is something that the FDA does not take, you know, they don't, I mean, when they create a black box warning, it's usually with pretty good thought um, and background. The black box warning associated with antipsychotic use in the elderly basically states that these agents are not indicated for the treatment of dementia in the elderly. And there's actually evidence to support that they can cause death when used in the elderly for these conditions. And that's a pretty serious warning. And so um, we as members of the healthcare team really need to be thinking about that. Um, and I will tell you that I've talked with many family members about their loved ones that are on antipsychotic medications. And when they read that black box warning, there's a lot of concern there and, and rightfully so. So we do need to keep that in mind that these agents have been shown to be possibly quite dangerous um, in the population that we generally deal with of older adults. So getting back to the anti-psychotic anti use criteria, in addition to the diagnosis, we have to have at least one of the following criteria met. Certainly if the symptoms are due to mania or psychosis, such as hallucinations or paranoia, I mean, these are the drugs of choice for those conditions. And um, that creates uh, a very important um, a need for these medications. Um, another criteria would be if the behaviors that the, that the resident exhibits present a danger to themselves or others. Um, things such as maybe hitting or, or aggressive behavior toward other residents or staff. Uh, we do need to remember that many of our residents in the nursing facilities are unable to defend themselves from aggressive behavior. So if we have a person that is causing danger to others, or themselves. I mean, if they're engaging, if the resident is engaging in behaviors that could cause uh, mortality or morbidity for themselves, I mean, that can be a criteria for antipsychotic use. And certainly, um, if the symptoms of their dementia type illness result in persistent distress, decline in function, or ability to receive care, that can also be an appropriate criteria for use of these agents. Um, examples of that would be um, constant fear which results in constant screaming or yelling um, that is actually a manifestation of a very distressful situation that the resident is experiencing. Certainly not eating, not eating and, and resulting in weight loss and uh, clinical decline, um, or not allowing cares or bathing, which could result in skin breakdown and other problems. So before we, we start anyone on antipsychotic use, we really need to rule out that these behaviors that we're trying to control and eliminate or ameliorate are not due to other conditions, such as medical conditions 
We know that hypoxia pain, um, certain infections can cause uh, behaviors and cognitive changes. Uh, certainly environmental stressors, um, being hungry, thirsty, um, being in an unusual place, change in location, um, going from one level of care to another, we know um, has an effect on cognition and behavior, um, and also psychological stressors, just being lonely um, or being having maybe a history of abuse. Um, all of these can be uh, can result in behaviors, and often there are better treatments for them um, than antipsychotics. The antipsychotics may mask the problem, but we really want to treat the root problem. Um, and certainly many of the agents that we can use to treat things like medical problems, pain, um, certainly come with much less potential for side effects than the antipsychotic class. So we want to use those whenever possible. We've all heard of target behaviors, so we do want to, uh, I want to talk about those for just a minute. Um, target behaviors are really defined as those behaviors um, associated with the, the condition we're treating um, for which we hope these medications will be effective. Um, target behaviors need to be specific. They need to be objective and quantitative. Uh, they need to be uh, monitored um, every day, uh, preferably every shift. Um, and they need, we need to avoid subjective uh, target behaviors. So an example of an objective and quantitative behavior is you know, hitting others um, three times a, a day or three times during the day shift. That would be very objective and very quantitative. Um, if I read that in a patient's chart or on their behavior monitoring form, I will know exactly what's happening. I know what hitting is, and I know what three times is. Um, in contrast to that, we want to avoid the more subjective target behaviors like agitation or even um, generalized anxiety. Um, I mean, agitation is somewhat undefined. I may think of agitation as a physical behavior. Someone else might think of it as a motor behavior. So that's two totally different things, and it may mean that this medication is either appropriate or inappropriate. So we want to avoid those somewhat undefined or more subjective target behaviors. And certainly, we want to avoid terms like continuous or all day or most of the shift, things that are really not quantitative. So you know, a number is good and a very specific behavior. And that way, when a person looks at the the indication for use of this medication and the continued use, they can actually um, make a, a better judgment. So monitoring for adverse effects. Um, remember I said that you know, the reason we, we want to avoid using these medications whenever possible is because they do have a fairly high potential for adverse effects, some of which can be quite serious, resulting in death or permanent disability. So we do want to monitor for those. We want to make sure that if they do start to occur, we can take action to reduce the dose or eliminate the medication whenever possible. Um, I've listed here um, the common anti-psychotic adverse effects. Um, I'll let you read those. Um, but the main ones we're concerned about um, that can cause some, some real problems are the anticholinergic side effects, things like uh, dry mouth, constipation, dizziness, and confusion. Um, as well as the neuromuscular, the Parkinsonian symptoms, the tremor, the shuffling gait, um, the, the akathisia, or just the internal restlessness that occurs. Um, also, orthostatic hypotension. Um, I really recommend on patients maintained on antipsychotics 
that we have some orthostatic blood pressures monitored um, at least monthly in the chart um, that can help us to identify potential orthostasis and which could result in, in falls. Uh, and we definitely have to do everything we can to prevent falls um, in our older adults. The newer antipsychotics like olanzapine um, can often cause what we call metabolic syndrome, which basically results in inability to um, control blood glucose. It can result in hyperlipidemia or high cholesterol, certainly weight gain, um, and all kinds of cardiac um, uh, sequelae from those conditions. Um, and also the sudden death that is mentioned in the uh, black box warning can certainly occur. Um, and let's not forget tardive dyskinesia. Uh, tardive dyskinesia, we believe, might be a little bit less common with some of the newer agents, although it still occurs. Um, and remember, tardive dyskinesia is that um, involuntary facial uh, mouth tongue movements that's very dis uh, disabling to people. Um, it can actually result in extreme difficulties in weight loss, uh, especially if there's false teeth involved. Um, and oftentimes, um, tardive dyskinesia can be a permanent side effect even after the medication is discontinued. And again, I just want to mention that, you know, because of adverse effects, um, uh, the FDA has put in a black box warning for the use of these agents for dementia in the elderly. And if you're not aware of that, I would encourage you to go to the FDA website or actually just ask your pharmacist to, to um, give you a package insert for any of these drugs and, and you'll see that. Um, many of the side effects associated with this, this class of drugs are dose related. So the regulations for some of the agents have very specific maximum daily doses that if we're going to exceed those, we're going to have to have some really good clinical uh, reasoning in the chart to defend that. I've put the, the doses that are out there for commonly used antipsychotics. There are some others that are not as common, um, but the ones on the left-hand side of the screen are the more traditional or what we call the older or first generation or what we call typical antipsychotics. Um, those on the right side of the screen are more what we call the second uh, or the atypical uh, generation of antipsychotics. Um, brand names that you might recognize in that group are Respiradol or Zyprexa, um, Seroquel are those on the, the right side. So how long should we use antipsychotics in a given resident? That's the big question. So unless clinically contraindicated, um, we do have to try periodic, what we call gradual dose reductions, or GDR. So what does that mean, clinical con clinically contraindicated? Well, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But if that GDR, or gradual dose reduction, is not clinically contraindicated, then within the first year in which we start a resident on one of these agents, or they're admitted on one, uh, we need to try a dose reduction on two separate quarters of the year, and we have to wait about a month between attempts. So this has kind of been interpreted to mean approximately every six months, maybe every four months, but they have to be in separate quarters, like first quarter of the year, second or third quarter, um, and we have to wait a month between attempts. Um, after one year of this, uh, we do need to try, we need to continue this gradual dose reduction and we need to try that at least annually. So when would it be contraindicated to do a dose reduction? 
if we have um, evidence based on those target behaviors that we've talked about, we have good evidence that says that when we've tried this in the past, those target symptoms have, re have recurred or worsened. And the, we have documentation, and this has to be from the physician, that there is that any additional attempts would impair the resident's function or cause increased distress behavior. So that's two things that have to occur. We also need to remember, remember those two broad categories of use of antipsychotics. There's the true, what we call psychiatric disorders, things such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, mania, um, any kind of hallucination, um, associated psychosis. When these agents are used for those conditions, as long as that use is in accordance with current standards of practice, or again, the target symptoms have recurred or become worse, um, then we really don't have to worry about the gradual dosing reduction. So if you have a patient in your facility that has schizophrenia as a diagnosis, it's actually probably very unwise if a person with schizophrenia is well-controlled on one of these agents, it's probably very unwise to try these gradual dosing reductions, unless you feel that there are side effects that you want to try to, to deal with, and maybe a lower dose would work. But the bottom line is it is not a requirement to do the GDR in such a patient. Before we go to sedative hypnotics, I do want to just mention one thing. People might say, why if a person's behaviors are controlled? It's, let's say the person has a, a dementia-type illness, say Alzheimer's disease, and they're well-controlled on their antipsychotic. You might say, well, why are we going to mess with that? Why are we going to attempt a gradual dosing reduction, which may result in those behaviors coming back? We do need to remember what happens with a disease such as Alzheimer's disease. We have to remember the clinical course of that disease. Uh, many times in the earlier stages of, of Alzheimer's disease, um, there are there is frustration and anger um, on behalf on the part of the resident, nursing home resident um, that often can be manifested in behaviors. Um, as the course of the disease progresses, however, um, oftentimes those behaviors become less of a problem. If we start a medication for those behaviors at the earlier onset, earlier stages of the disease, um, at some point, those medications will no longer be necessary. And the only way to know when we've reached that point is really to try the gradual dose reduction. So that's the clinical rationale behind this. And I realize that sometimes in practice, it's, it's kind of hard to, to get your arms around that. Um, but remember, as the disease progresses, many times the need for these medications um, kind of dissipates. And because of their side effects, um, and then and the fact that there, there are some clinically significant problems with their long-term use, uh, we do want to maintain people on the lowest possible dose and certainly discontinue whenever possible. So let's go ahead and shift gears to um, the, the use of sedative hypnotics um, and the unnecessary medication regulation um, as it relates to sedative hypnotics. Um, this fairly narrow category is really talking about those medications we use to treat insomnia. We're not talking about sedatives as far as anxiety. There's a whole other section that we're gonna talk about in a little bit 
um, about anxiety, but we're really talking about sedative hypnotics used for sleep induction or to treat insomnia. Um, certainly, um, this has been a long-standing uh, regulatory issue in long-term care. Many of the agents we have um, have not been shown to be safe and or effective for long-term use. Most of the use, if you read the manufacturer's ind indications, are for short-term use. Some as short as seven to 10 days, some for up to a month. Um, but with the exception of one that I can think of, most of them have very specific time limitations as far as how long they should be used. So certainly before we use sedative hypnotics or when we're trying our, our, our gradual dose reductions, uh, we need to try some non-pharmacological interventions. Um, things such as improving sleep hygiene. We also need to realize that when these agents are used for short-term use for procedures, for example, if we need to provide something to relax someone before dental procedures um, or at the early stages of treatment of another condition such as depression or pain until those symptoms have been identified and treated, um, it, is, it is quite appropriate to use these agents. Again, as with the antipsychotics, we want to rule out other factors that might be contributing to the, the insomnia or the need for a perceived need for a sedative hypnotic. Um, things such as environmental factors, maybe it's a light issue, noise, heat, or cold. Um, nursing facilities, sometimes depending upon what room the, the resident is in, may be night noisier or more subject to light um, than others. Certainly caffeine or other medications. Um, if a person is on stimulating medication, such as some of the decongestants or agents for asthma, we can certainly have um, you know, stimulation from those medications or even caffeine. And caffeine we know is hidden in lots and lots of different agents. Coffee, of course, is the most common, um, but certainly chocolate um, and other kinds of foods, energy drinks, etc. Um, inadequate physical activity, facility routines, provision of care, um, and certainly underlying conditions. Uh, if we have pain as an underlying condition, certainly that can interfere uh, with our sleep. Um, other conditions such as heart failure, um, COPD, restless leg, um, and don't forget urinary tract problems, um, especially like in males that might have some BPH, um, possibly, you know, they're getting up three or four times a night to go to the restroom. Um, maybe it's a matter of adequately treating um, a prostate condition um, and that will help with the insomnia. Um, again, what we want to avoid here is that thing we call polypharmacy where we end up using a med to treat a side effect of another med or to mask symptoms of a disease um, that isn't adequately treated. Okay, so prior to initiation, we want to make sure that we use good sleep hygiene. And good sleep hygiene as is certain practices such as a routine time for retiring, you know, avoiding watching TV in bed at night to try to fall asleep, um, avoiding stimulating drinks and beverages or eating right before bed, primarily using the bed for sleep. Um, those are just all good sleep hygiene um, practices. And it's amazing, you know, how, how just doing some of those non-pharmacologic um, actions can can improve a person's ability to sleep. 
Um, sometimes we need to individualize the sleep and wake times to accommodate the resident's wishes. Maybe the person doesn't want to go to bed at 1030 every night. Maybe they've been a night owl for most of their life um, and they like to go to bed at midnight and wake up at eight or nine. Um, and, you know, why, why can't the resident do that? So we need to think about, you know, what is what is what is the resident's wishes as far as retiring time and waking time. And certainly, as I mentioned on the previous slide, um, treating any underlying conditions um, and address the environmental factors. Certainly, we need to monitor for both effectiveness and adverse effects for sedative hypnotics as we do all medications. Um, again, um, the efficacy would be an improvement in sleep or sleep quality, um, reduction in nocturnal awakenings, being able to sleep through the whole night, um, reduction in time to fall asleep once they go to, uh, when they retire. So all of these things could be monitored um, and should be documented in the clinical record. And certainly these agents are not without adverse effects. Um, there is um, clinical evidence to associate these medications with falls, especially in the morning. Uh, some of the longer acting agents can certainly have a morning hangover. Um, and there's a growing body of evidence to describe confusion and forgetfulness uh, with the use of these meds. In fact, some of them actually in their FDA labeling uh, talk about sleep driving, which many of our residents aren't driving, but it points out the fact that people do things in maybe in the middle of the night or after they take them that they don't remember. Um, and certainly if you have a resident that is um, suggesting that unusual things are happening or they're doing unusual things if they're on one of these medications we really need to think about that because you know it's possible that maybe those things are happening maybe they are getting up and going outside in the middle of the night uh, and doing um, some, some dangerous things and they don't even remember it so that forgetfulness or what we call sleep driving for lack of a better term um, is something we do need to consider these agents also have maximum daily doses. Um, I've listed them in two different columns here. One is the benzodiazepines. Um, Tamazepam is the classic. Um, lorazepam is also used for sleep and other uh, conditions, anxiety. Um, the non-benzodiazepines or the newer agents are, are there. Um, Zopidem or Ambien is probably the most common in that category. Um, Lunesta is also another one. Um, I will point out there is one there, the the Rameltion, which is listed as a maximum of eight milligrams, it's actually a melatonin type drug. Um, and that one is not a controlled substance, which puts it in a little different category than the rest. Um, and it is also one for which um, the, the labeling actually doesn't list uh, or isn't as strongly in recommendation of short-term use. Um, so, so that is one that's kind of a little different than the other agents in that group. There are certain sedative hypnotics that have traditionally been used that we really should not be using, and I've listed those on this slide for you. Um, of note, diphenhydramine or Benadryl is really on the top of the list, and um, it's a drug that I really do not like to see used in the older adults. Um, sadly, because it's an over-the-counter drug and it's been around forever, uh, people tend to think it's safer um, than some of the other sedative hypnotics, but in reality, um, we know that in the older adults, the anticholinergic effects, the cognitive um, effects of this drug can actually be uh, very, very uh, debilitating for older adults. So diphenhydramine as well as hydroxazine, which has a lot of antihistamine properties, um, also known as Vistaril or Atarax, 
are probably two that I really don't like to see used in the older adult. I don't really know of too many people using chlorhydrate anymore, and certainly flurazepam, which is a very long-acting sleeping agent, a benzodiazepine class, um, is, is one that we should not be used either. Um, I really don't know of anybody using barbiturates for sedative hypnotics either, but again, those are considered inappropriate for sedative hypnotics. So again, um, the duration is the big issue with sedative hypnotics. We do recommend that they are used for the shortest time possible, um, if possible, to avoid daily use. So if a person needs um, an occasional sleeping agent, um, it's better to try to limit that to a couple times a week rather than certainly daily, um, because we do have evidence that daily use really is associated with more side effects and actually a reduction in efficacy after a period of time. Um, again, the, the manufacturers, if you look at their, their labeling, will actually, for the most part, list these agents are for short-term use. So consequently, that we do have the gradual dose reduction requirement for this class of agents. And it's listed here for you. Um, it is basically a quarterly requirement, and um, that needs to be documented and moni monitored. So if, if we do this, Certainly during that time period, we want to monitor those sleep parameters, both the um, side effects and the efficacy. And certainly, um, we can have a contraindication to the gradual dose reduction with sedative hypnotics, just like we do with the uh, antipsychotics, that um, if we've tried this repeatedly and the resident just does not sleep and they have impairment in their function or possibly psychiatric instability and the target behavior or symptoms returned, we can certainly label that as a contraindication. For the remainder of this talk, we're going to talk about the third class of drugs listed under unnecessary medications, and this is the psychopharmacological class. And this is probably the newest group of meds that were added, um, and it's a very broad class. And it is actually includes um, some medications that in the past really weren't regulated and didn't really get mentioned um, in the nursing home regulations. And this broad class is defined by what the medication is used to treat. So it's defined as any medication used to manage behaviors of any kind, to stabilize mood, or even treat a psychiatric disorder. So you can see this covers a broad category of medications and uses. Um, and it's often referred to in the regulations, regulations as those meds used for those conditions that I just mentioned, other than antipsychotic or sedative hypnotics. So you know, we have the antipsychotic and the sedative hypnotics pretty well spelled out in the previous sections of this regulation. So now we're going to take a whole new class, very broadly defined, um, and include them. So uh, this slide is, is kind of important to understand because if you look at it, we have three fairly broad categories. We have anxiolytics, we have anticonvulsants, and we have antidepressants. Um, and certainly there's a lot of overlap between these. And it makes for some very, very confusing slides coming up, and I apologize for that. But if we kind of if we try to think about these as anxiolytics, anticonvulsants and antidepressants, and then we'll talk about each of those major categories. Um, where it really gets confusing is when we have an antidepressant. 
because we know that certain classes of antidepressants are used for anxiety as well as antidepressant use. So we, again, we have to be cognizant of what the indication is and how they, they fit into this regulation. I have put a little asterisk by some agents that were previously not regulated. Um, of note, antidepressants in the past um, have been mentioned in regulations, but there was really never a well-defined need for a gradual dose requirement for antidepressants. That has changed with this regulation, um, some of which I'm not sure I totally agree with, um, but certainly um, they are mentioned now in terms of gradual dose reduction, um, as well as the use of anticonvulsants for behaviors. So there are exemptions because as we know that these broad classes of medications have lots and lots of other uses other than to manage behaviors. So certainly if we're using any of these for neuromuscular conditions such as um, cerebral palsy, restless leg or seizure disorder, we do not need to worry about the gradual dose reductions. Um, those that would be considered clinically contraindicated. Um, certainly we use long acting benzodiazepines to taper from short acting. Um, and certainly there are exemptions if these medications are used for symptom relief in end-of-life situations and um, terminal illnesses or hospice care. So let's talk about um, the anti-anxiety uh, anti medications or the anxiolytics. Um, that appendix PP in the state operations manual, which I've referenced at the end of this presentation, you're going to see a table called Table 1. And Table 1 has many, many medications listed, um, and it lists a lot of information about each class. Some of them are individual medications listed in that table. Um, Anxiolytics has its own section there, and they talk um, about um, some of the concerns we have, um, and a lot of them deal with um, the potential side effects of the anxiolytic class. We, we need to remember when these agents are used for symptoms of delirium, dementia, and other cognitive disorders, that those behaviors, again, just like with the antipsychotics, they have to be quantitatively and objectively documented. So again, we want to say exactly what the patient is doing. How are they, how is this anxiety or delirium or dementia or any, whatever disorder that we're treating the symptoms of, what is, what are those symptoms um, and how many times per shift or per time period um, are those behaviors being exhibited. Um, those have to be monitored um, to justify continued use of these medications. Um, and certainly when we do our gradual dosing reductions, we're going to want to look at that um, behavior monitoring flow sheet to determine what has happened as we've tried to reduce these doses. Have things gotten better? Have they gotten worse? Have they stayed the same? Um, so we need to, to, to think about those target behaviors um, very objectively. Um, the behaviors must be persistent. And again, we need to rule out all the preventable causes, other meds. Um, we certainly know that there are medications, again, some of the stimulating meds, um, actually some of the antidepressants we use can actually cause um, anxiety or insomnia um, and stimulated behaviors. Um, and certainly these behaviors um, should you know, that we're treating should be shown to cause significant distress or dysfunction. And again, we have the danger to self or others. For monitoring of anxiolytics, we certainly want to look for efficacy. 
um, we want to look for improvement or maintenance of their mental, physical, or social well-being. Um, again, I'll just repeat, <laughs> those behaviors, those target behaviors need to be very objective and very quantitative. Um, and as far as adverse effect monitoring for this, this broad class of drugs, um, those are going to vary by class, and I'm going to talk about those as we talk about the individual agents and classes of agents. Probably the most common class of agents and the longest used class of agents for anxiety are the benzodiazepines, of which Librium or Chlordizepoxide or Valium or Diazepam are the prototypes. Um, these agents have been around for decades. Um, we all know some of the problems with these agents. Um, certainly, um, from a nursing facility standpoint, they're mostly um, they're controlled substances, so that requires counting, um, which is a minor inconvenience. But um, in addition to that, they're associated with some pretty significant adverse effects. We have very good evidence to associate these agents with falls. Uh, and of course, we know in our older adults when they fall, um, some really bad things can happen as far as fractures, confusion, sedation, and again, forgetfulness, um, amnesia type things. So many times the behaviors that we're trying to treat can actually be exacerbated by using these agents. The benzodiazepines also have their maximum daily doses. Um, and we also, the regulations aren't as specific as they used to be when they reorganized the, the regulations under the psychopharmacological medications section of unnecessary drugs. They kind of changed things around a bit. We used to be really concerned about long-acting versus short-acting benzodiazepines. Um, it's not mentioned so much in the regulations, but um, I will say that in my personal experience and opinion, uh, we do want to avoid those longer-acting agents like chlorodiazepoxide, chlorazepate, and diazepam. Um, and I see I have a typo on this slide. Uh, that should be clonazepam, not D-clonazepam. <laughs> That's the fourth one down. Um, we want to use the shortest, the shorter-acting agents if we can, um, on as limited amount as possible. The shorter-acting agents um, have less accumulation um, in the body, and they're going to be less likely to be hanging around for long periods of time, causing increased blood levels. So things like lorazepam would probably be a, a reasonable choice for short-term use if necessary. Again, we have a couple of anxiolytics. These are not the benzodiazepine class, but these are agents that I mentioned under sedative hypnotics that we really don't like to use, but historically have been used as sedatives and anxiolytics. Um, and that's diphenhydramine or Benadryl or hydroxyzine or Vistaril or Atarax. Um, these agents have a lot of anticholinergic side effects, and those can be very, very counterproductive when we're trying to treat things like um, anxiety associated with cognitive dysfunction. Abuspirone well, is listed now um, as an anxiolytic that needs to be monitored, um, and it is subject to the gradual dosing reduction. It is kind of an unusual um, agent for anxiety. It's a totally different class than the benzodiazepines. Um, or the antidepressants that we use for anxiety. Um, it is an agent that is not really effective as a PRN medication. It is a scheduled medication. Um, there currently is not listed a maximum daily dose of this agent, um, but it is, if it is being used, it does need to be considered an anxiolytic and monitored and uh, dose reduced as, as those agents are too. Now, the antidepressants, this is where it gets kind of confusing. Now, the antidepressants are listed under the subheading anxiolytics, 
in the psychopharmacological agents section. Um, and then they also have their own standalone setting um, where basically they're being used as antidepressants, which is classically what they're used for. But we do need to realize that um, of the classes of antidepressants we have, many of them are used for antidepression, uh, many of them are used for anxiety, and some of them are used for pain control or prophylaxis of pain. And so it kind of depends on the use, but the gradual dose reduction requirement is the same regardless of how they're being used. So monitoring of these agents, um, we, we have some very specific monitoring parameters. Again, the target behaviors, I probably am beating this horse pretty, pretty hard right now, but um, again, I, I would just reiterate that those target behaviors really need to be objective and quantitatively documented, um, exactly like we did with the sedative hypnotics and the antipsychotics. And um, efficacy, of course, depending upon the indication, is it for mood or is it for anxiety? Um, we do need to always keep in mind with these agents that we need to look for improvement of symptoms as well as worsening, potential worsening of symptoms and suicidal behavior. Um, and again, I want to mention um, the FDA black box warning. Um, antidepressants have a black box warning also. Um, not quite to the same uh, degree of scariness as the antipsychotics do. Um, and truly, the black box warning for these agents, you might say, really doesn't affect our age group. Because the black box warning is primarily for children and young adults and adolescents. I mean, it really deals with increase of suicidal thoughts and ideation um, upon initiation of these agents. Um, and in fact, the black box warning goes on to say that in adults over 65, that this may not be the case. Um, however, uh, we do need to be aware of this, um, this potential uh, possibility um, and realize that, um, that we do need to monitor for that because it can be a serious condition. We also want to um, realize that um, many of the antidepressants um, have similar side effects. I've, on this particular slide, I've tried to denote those, eight, those side effects that are maybe specific to a class or, or, or two. Um, but we have many different classes of antidepressants, and it's kind of beyond the scope of this lecture to talk about that. But I just want to briefly mention that we have the the traditional antidepressants, the tricyclics or the TCAs, things like nortriptyline, amitriptyline, imipramine. Uh, those are older agents um, associated with more of the anticholinergic side effects. Um, oftentimes, they're probably not considered the first choice in the older adult. Um, with the exception of nortriptyline, um, they all have you know, pretty serious side effects. Uh, nortriptyline, on the other hand, in, in moderate or low doses, um, can be fairly safely used in the older adults. Um, we have the, the, new, the oldest class of antidepressants, which hardly are used anymore, the MAOIs, or monoamine oxidase inhibitors, um, generally considered not the best choice for use in the older adults, or in anybody really, because of a lot of significant interactions with other drugs and foods. Um, then we have the newer agents, the SSRIs, or the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, um, Selexor, Citalopram, Prozac, or Fluoxetine are the, the classics of those. Um, those tend to have less side effects in the older adult than generally preferred. 
Um, however, they can have some issues too, as, as mentioned on this slide with hyponatremia. Um, and then certainly we have newer agents, the SNRIs, the, the selective serotonin norepinephrine up, uh, reuptake inhibitors, um, such that are newer. Um, and they all have their own slightly different um, side effect profile. But for the most part, um, they're all monitored fairly similarly as far as their effects based on what their indication is for. Um, and many of them are used, as I said, for both anxiety and depression. Um, and in addition to that, they can also be used for pain. Of note, um, when these agents are used for pain, um, they are exempt from the uh, gradual dose reduction. So if we have, a, say, a patient with a neuropathic pain or just any kind of persistent pain, and we're using a, a, an SSRI or an SNRI for those uh, in conjunction with pain medication, as long as that's well-documented, I think you'd have a very good case for not trying to reduce that. So the um, anticonvulsants is the next group that we're going to talk about. Um, again, these are meds that are used for quite a few different indications. Um, certainly, they are um, required to have a gradual dose reduction if they're used to manage uh, behavior or stabilize mood or treat any kind of psychiatric disorder, um, and they're exempted from that gradual dose requirement if they're used for, again, neuropathic pain, prevention of migraines, or seizure disorder. The monitoring, again, if we're using an anticonvulsant for behavior, we should be monitoring behavior. We should, again, have those target symptoms, and again, they should be objective and quantitatively documented. Um, and just of note, um, some of the anticonvulsants we do have recommended serum concentrations. Um, those serum concentrations are really um, there for maintenance of seizure-free uh, intervals. Um, the serum concentrations are not really appropriate to monitor as far as uh, for efficacy. Um, a case could be made for doing occasional serum concentrations to avoid toxicity, um, but uh, just because we have serum concentrations, um, that would not necessarily qualify as appropriate monitoring an anticonvulsant that's used for behavior stabilization. Anticonvulsants certainly have a lot of adverse effects also, um, and they vary by agent. This is just a list, and it's pretty much all over the place as far as what medications uh, we're talking about. Um, the anticonvulsants that are commonly used are things like um, valproate or valproic acid, um, Depakote or Depakine. Um, things like carbamazepine or oxcarbamazepine, Tegretol. Um, those are agents that are, that are used quite often, and many of them do have some fairly significant side effects that we do need to monitor for. And that's one of the reasons why they're not considered um, this totally safe um, agent to use in the older adult. One thing I do want to note on the last slide um, is that last bullet point, confusion or interference with concentration. Um, that's something that we need to always be cognizant of, um, and certainly some are more prone to cause this than others, but um, when a person is started on an anticonvulsant, uh, we do need to uh, note for worsening of this ability to concentrate or increasing confusion. Um, it certainly could be um, a side effect of medication, which would uh, definitely be counterproductive. So, um, 
for the psychopharmacological agents, and this, this includes all the anti, um, the medications we've talked about in this class, the anxiolytics, um, the anticonvulsants, and the antidepressants, all of them fall under this psychopharmacological gradual dose requirement recommendation. Um, and they're all required to go through this. And this includes, believe it or not, antidepressants when they're used for depression. Um, now, I can't necessarily say I agree with that. I think there are cases to be made for an older adult with a long-standing history of depression with multiple episodes where uh, I don't necessarily necessarily think it's in the best interest of that patient to try these gradual dose reductions. Um, but the regulations are pretty clear in that they say that we should attempt. Certainly we can have good clinical evidence and you know, we can make a case for those individual uh, residents that we feel would be quite dangerous and we still can use that clinical judgment. Um, but for the most part, all of these agents, we need to try a dose reduction uh, within the first year. Um, and it needs to be tried on two separate quarters, with at least one month between. And this sounds a little bit familiar because it's very similar to the set of hypnotics. Um, and then after that, it needs to be attempted at least annually. So certainly there's contraindications to this uh, gradual dose reduction. Um, if we have um, evidence that our use or continued use is within our current standards of practice and we have a clinical rationale, so I could certainly make a case for, you know, that person that has a long-standing history of depression with numerous um, episodes um, that took uh, quite a while to get under control. Um, I could certainly make a case for not reducing the antidepressant for that person. Um, however, remember, if we're using these for anxiety or behaviors associated with dementing illnesses, we do need to remember that the clinical course of those illnesses might be such that those um, behaviors and those symptoms might actually go away. So um, in those cases, it would probably be appropriate to try those GDRs. And with that, I will leave you with the references. Um, again, um, the references that, or the reference that I used for the majority, actually all of this talk, is the State Operations Manual Appendix PP. And it is available free of charge at the CMS website, which is listed there on your screen or you can Google State Operations Manual PP, and I think it'll take you to the CMS website also. Um, I did access this um, on September 24th, uh, 2010, um, and uh, it was accurate at that time. And at this time, I'd like to thank you for your attention, um, and uh, I look forward to visiting with you again. Thank you.